that are set in there and and I don't know how you do that. It depends on not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. I, I don't know how you do that. So um, here I am to tell you again, I'm just admittedly slow. And I guess the older I get, the slower I get. But um, uh, I do have a conscience about it. I don't know if that makes it any better, but I have a conscience. Tonight we we really kind of get into the text. I, I, I told you my long story about... Uh, Jake DeShazer last week, I don't think y'all liked that story, but that's okay. I still thought it was a wonderful story, and and I stand by it. Uh, but uh, the fact that that man, uh, a prisoner of war, ended up preaching Christ to the man who led the planes over Pearl Harbor, I, that, that is just phenomenal to me. But tonight we kind of we kind of get um, we kind of turn up the uh, the uh, the heat in terms of looking at the text. So go there with me in uh, Romans chapter ten, and. Um, let me, uh, we'll just jump right at where the text opens in verse 9. We're looking at verses 9 and 10, and we'll be here for a while. But it says, because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. Gang, um... What this verse does, in essence, is tell you the, uh, um, it gives you the content of the gospel. It, it tells you, in essence, how to become a Christian. It's right there in those two verses. Uh, it, it leads you into the heart of the content of the gospel. This is a, this is a definition. Romans 9 and 10 is a definition of saving faith. And thus, uh, you wouldn't expect to go very fast through it, I hope, but that's what it is. It is, um, it is a succinct, um, wonderfully profound summation of the, the, uh, the Christian gospel, uh, definition of saving faith or telling people how you can become a Christian, however you want to say it. That's what this text is. Now, the, uh, let me, let me mention two kind of introductory things and we'll dive into the text itself, but just two kind of introductory notes I want you to see. The first, I want you to notice that verse 9 and 10, there's a shift that takes place here. The, sh- it's a pronoun shift, and the shift is, shift is from, uh, the, the third person to the second person. Um, l- let me show you what I'm talking about. Look at verse 8. Verse 8 says, but what does it say? Uh, Paul is he's comparing the word of um, the, the, the the righteousness achieved by faith and then a righteousness achieved by works and he says but what does the righteousness achieve what does it say that's the third person ladies and gentlemen he she it but now in verse nine he shifts to the second person because if you so it's there's a shift from talking about he, she, it, to talking about you. So everything that is, that is being discussed now has become altogether very personal. It has to do with giving you information. It's not, it's not something, um, that is remote from you. It is, it is something that you are now uh, asked to use and evaluate yourself thereby. 
So that's the first thing that I want you to see, the shift of pronouns from the third to the second. The other thing that I want you to notice as we begin, I guess the item that kind of strikes you, that it, 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 at least it struck me immediately upon reading it, is that the order seems wrong. Um, what, what I mean by that is, if you confess with your mouth that you, and believe in your heart, it's got confession before believing. Shouldn't it be the other way around? I mean, um, don't, don't, don't you believe first and this, then confess? Well, let, me, let me say a couple of things. First of all, guys, don't make a whole lot out of that, that what seems to be a, a, a wrong order, because in verse 10, he does give you that order. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. There is what you would think is the right order. But probably all that the Apostle Paul is doing is simply beginning with what is first observed. And what is it that's first observed? It's one's confession with his mouth. And then he moves on later to point out the cause of or the, the, the source of origin of that confession. So even though you might um, have noticed that that seems a little bit out of order, I wouldn't, I wouldn't pause too long there. Now, it says, because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. <laughs> Let's start with that and uh, spend, oh, I don't know, a month or so right there. Um, guys, the first thing I would have you notice is, this is, as I said, it's the definition of the gospel. It's a definition of the content of the gospel. Notice how he starts. If you confess. Now, guys, the first thing that Christians must be sure about is what they believe. It has to do with a confession. It has to do with something that you believe and give voice to. Christianity does not start with, with how you feel. It doesn't start with love. I shouldn't. I mean, love is a wonderful thing, and I don't mean to make light of it. But the Christian gospel does not start with a discussion about love. Nor does it, does it start with a discussion about behavior. It starts with a confession of some kind of content. It does not start with something about how you feel... Oh, you know, I don't care what you say. I just know that my life has changed and I feel like a new person now and I don't care about the evidence. Ladies and gentlemen, the Christian gospel doesn't start like that. Nor does it start like this. If you're a Christian, you don't smoke. Or you don't drink. Or you don't do those things that those um, people down on Beale Street do. It doesn't start like that. If you confess... It starts with something about your belief system. I will tell you the story that I, that I thought was, um, I just thought was interesting, and it was told to me by one of our nurses that, that goes to church here, and I won't use her name because it might embarrass her, but I don't, I don't think it would, but um, she's, a, she's a neonatal nurse, and, and she's, she's a, you know, she's the kind, if you had a sick child, you would want her taking care of your sick child because she just she's so given over to what she does and she's just a delightful Christian, etc. But anyway, the hospital for which she works did something wrong. They did some kind of ethical bad thing. 
and they got fined by somebody, some kind of uh, governing agency, for having done some bad things. And they got fined $19 million. So their, their banking uh, system had to pay a $19 million fine for having done a bad thing. Now, she didn't know what the bad thing was, but uh, they did a bad thing, cost them $19 million. So, as you might well imagine, management was a little bit upset about that. And so to correct this $19 million fine, to make sure that this never happened again, all of the nurses, now I don't know whether this is just in neonatal or all the nurses, I don't know, but I knew that all the nurses in neonatal were required to come in on whatever, it didn't make any difference whether they're off day or not, but they had to undergo um, two hours, <laughs> two whole hours of ethics training. Can you imagine teaching an ethics course in two hours? Did I ever tell you the story? I know I've told you this story, but you've forgotten it. But <clears throat> I think it was like 1987, a man by the name of Shad, I don't know his first name, but he was the, uh, the president of the New York Stock Exchange. He, um, he, and, and I might have my figures wrong here, but I, I want to say it was 35 million, but it could have been 37 million, but who quibbles over a couple of million? But, um, I think it was William Shad, but I, I could be wrong about that. But his last name was Shad. He gave to Harvard Business School $35 million. And the $35 million was designed, no, it was specified that that $35 million, because of the, all of the horrible, unethical things that went on in the business corporate world, that, that a chair was to be uh, funded by this $35 million to teach ethics to uh, Harvard Business School grads. As of 1995, that's seven years later, uh, I haven't seen reports lately, but as of 1995, they hadn't spent a dime of it. You know why? They couldn't figure out what ethics was. That's the honest truth. They didn't know which ethics they were supposed to. They didn't know what the grounds of ethics were. We don't know how to teach ethics, and so we can't spend the... Now, I don't know whether Shad took the money back or whether they still got the money. But the point is, we're going to bring the nurses in, and we're going to teach them ethics in a couple of hours. That itself is is rather ludicrous. But um, this little nurse, I was I was on my little elliptical, and she was telling me this whole story. And, and, uh, and she said... What they ended up teaching us in that two hours was basically the golden rule. Do unto others as you... I shouldn't make light, and that's a glorious truth of the scriptures. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. And that's what they taught in the ethics class. They didn't call it the golden rule. They didn't say that it came from uh, from Christianity. Uh, they made no reference to Jesus' teaching. But they're saying, basically, guys, here's what we want you to do to be ethical nurses. We want you to do unto others as you would have them do unto you. But my point is this, guys. That's what... That's what the non-Christian world thinks religion is. It's behavior. It's some kind of moral reform. It's some kind of ethical moorings. And as if, if we can just get a behavior adjustment, we can call that Christianity because the world is, 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 believes that you can have a, you can have Religion slash morality or morality slash religion without the gospel. No, ladies and gentlemen, there is no morality where there is no morality giver. There, there's moral responsibility is impossible without a moral ideal.
But having said that, Christianity does not start with a discussion of behavior. Do you see that? It starts with a discussion of a confession. You know what a confession is? A confession is what you believe. So, right out of the starting gate, if you want a definition of Christianity, what the Apostle Paul says is basically this. If you confess. So the first thing that you got to get straight, or that we got to get straight, if we're going to be Christians, is certain things that we believe. And he begins straight away. <laughs> if you confess with your mouth, that! <laughs> and here's number one. Jesus is Lord. Oh my goodness, ladies and gentlemen. I, you know, we're going to spend at least the rest of the night next week on that. But we could spend longer. I mean, really, we could. But let me, let me, let me start like this. I mean, we're going to, we're going <laughs> to, it's three simple words. Jesus is Lord. All right. Let's kind of slow down and back up. Um, guys, uh, I've shown you this, be- I've shown you this word before. I hadn't shown you all this before, I don't think. Um, the Hebrew word for Jehovah. Now everybody knows what Jehovah is, don't you? I mean, that's the, that's the reference to the pers- first person of the Trinity, the giver of the law at Sinai, uh, the, uh, you know, the one that part of the Red Sea, Jehovah, Yahweh. Um, the Hebrew word is a very, um, yod Hey vav Hey. Um, it, it's basically the verb to be with the first person singular uh, prefix on it. I am. But when you got ready to pronounce it, you would have a um, J-H-Y-H. I mean, they write this way, so that's kind of... Anyway, um, so uh, somebody came along and put in some uh, some um, vowels for us and got ho. Uh, va. <laughs> okay? So, Jehovah, or Yahweh, comes from this Hebrew word. Clear? I mean, that's, that's pretty easy. Now, guys, um, the Greek word, well, I don't, where should I go there first? Or, all right. Um, in, uh, in about the third century, it was around 250, B.C. Uh, a group of 70 um, uh, Jewish scholars, priests, tra- uh, uh, Alexander the Great had swept through that, uh, that section of the country, that section of the world, about 350 B.C. So the lingua franca of, of that section of the world, as of Alexander the Great, became Greek. That's Hebrew. Okay? So about 350 uh, B.C., Alexander the Great pulls off all of his um, major uh, stunts, and the whole section of the world changed their language to, to, to Greek. You know, the, the, the Greco Empire, you know, that thing. Well, Greek becomes the language. So about 100 years later, one of the Ptolemies, and I, one of the, uh, I forget which one, uh, one of the uh, Ptolemy, you know, 
Ptolemy, uh, the kings, one of those guys, um, uh, put up the money for the, um, for the Old Testament Hebrew to be translated into Greek. Are you with me? I mean, uh, Greek's now the language. We don't understand Hebrew. So let's put, let's get the thing in Greek. And so he funds, uh, uh, it's called, I mean, uh, well, you know what that is? Those are Roman numerals. Roman numerals, which mean what? That's 70. Uh, but actually there were 72 of them. Uh, 72 priests, but that's, that was the closest number, that was the closest round number. Um, that he hired 72 priests to translate the Old Testament into Greek. And it's called this. That translation of the Hebrew language of the Old, the Old Testament, and there were some other things they translated too, but they translated the Old Testament out of Hebrew into Greek, and it's called that. The word is the Septuagint. Now, the word Septuagint means 70. Okay? You got it? I mean, so that's how, that's how the Septuagint got its name. That's why they call it this. If you're reading a book and you see this, it's referring to that document. It's referring to a, to a Greek translation of the Old Testament Hebrew. Are you still with me or are you asleep yet? I mean, does this make, does this, does this matter to anybody in here? It's gonna. It's gonna in just a second. <laughs> it's going to make a whole lot of difference. Or it's going to mean a whole lot of something. Um, all right, guys, you come to the New Testament. And um, there is, a, right, like right here, like in Romans chapter 9, and you come to this statement, Jesus is Lord. Okay? Uh, there's, well, we'll just put the English word up here for a moment. Uh, Jesus is Lord. This machine doesn't work like it's supposed to work. It's, uh, but, but anyway, um, uh, Jesus is Lord. Do, do you know what the Greek word for Lord is that's found in the, by the way, there's a, in, in Greek, there's, there's really, um, like, um, um, Luke Wilkins is trying to study Greek at the University of Tennessee. The fact that the University of Tennessee teaches Greek just shows you what an excellent university the University of Tennessee really is. Really, it's a, it's a Christian school. Uh, <laughs> but gang, there's all, no, there's not all kinds, but there's a couple of ways, a couple of kinds of Greek. There's classical Greek. Um, and then there's Koine. That's K-O-I-N-E. Um, I guess. The New Testament is written in Koine Greek. Now, the, when you're in seminary, what they, they don't teach you classical Greek. Like, if you go into Athens today and they speak classical Greek. But, I mean, they're close, but it's not Koine. Um, but the Koine Greek word for this word right here is the Greek term kurios. Um... You know that. You've heard of that before. Uh, the Beatles sang about it. Um, what was the song? Curie Eliezer or something like that. I forget the song. That I mean, it was a good song. 
Um, but they were, they were alluding to a Greek term, kurios, which is translated Lord. Are you ready? It's time to wake up. Because the punchline's coming. Gang. This was done, the, the Septuagint was done in about 250 B.C. That's approximate. That's a, you, know, you might find, you might, might get a little better, but 250 years before Jesus was born, the, the Old Testament was translated into Greek called the Septuagint. When the 70 Jewish scholars were translating the Old Testament and came to this word, Yahweh! When they came to that word, and they were translating that word into this document, guess what Greek word they used? Curious. When the, when the 72 Hebrew scholars translated the Hebrew tetragrammaton, known as Yahweh, they used in 250 B.C. the Greek word kurios. Ladies and gentlemen, do you know what you're reading when you read Romans chapter 10 verse 9 and it says, if you confess with their mouth, Jesus is Lord. Do you know what you're reading? You are reading... Jesus is Jehovah. That's what you're reading. Jesus is Yahweh. Ladies and gentlemen, the Christian faith starts with a confession of things that you believe. And the first thing that it says about your belief system is this. That you believe that the God who thundered from Sinai and gave ten commandments to Moses is the one who was born in Bethlehem. That you believe that the God who inflicted Pharaoh with eleven plagues is the God that was born of a virgin. That's what you're believing. What you're saying is that you believe in the deity of Jesus Christ. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Yahweh, is that what you believe? Because if you don't believe that, ladies and gentlemen, you're not a Christian. You know, all this who shot John about, um, you know, Jesus was a misunderstood Jew and he's really just um, the, the uh, illicit, he's the product of an illicit affair that Mary had with a Roman soldier. But he was a very good man and he's a good moral teacher. Ladies and gentlemen, I, everybody in the, the planet can believe that, but this book doesn't teach that. That's all I'm telling you. You might believe that. You might believe that Jesus is some kind of great prophet that is in right in there with, 
you know, Joseph Smith and the angel Moroni. Or you might believe that he is, he is, uh, a, 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 uh, in the same line with Muhammad. You can believe that all you want. I'm simply telling you, that ain't Christianity. I don't know what you want to call it. You can call it whatever you want to call it. But Christianity, the basic content of the Christian gospel begins with that. Jesus is Lord. Yesu. Yesu is curious. Guys, um, see, this is where I, I when we could go for days. Um, okay, let's say you buy that. Let's say you 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 you're all on board with Jesus is Jehovah. Okay, do you know what that next means? No, not me, I don't know about next. But it also means that you're also convinced of the virgin birth. How about that? Oh, no, Jimmy. Back in Isaiah chapter 9, the you know what it said in, in Isaiah chapter 9 is that she wasn't a virgin, or that she wouldn't be a virgin, she would just be a fair maiden. It's the whole Alma and Batula debate, Jimmy. Don't you, don't you understand that? Yes, I do understand it, ladies and gentlemen, and I understand exactly where it comes from, and it came from a smith, a, a pit that smells like smoke. But, you can believe it if you like. I'm simply telling you, God is Jesus. And the necessary implication of that is there had to be some kind of virgin birth someplace. Because if Jesus is just the product of some sexual liaison between her and Joseph or her and a Roman soldier or her and who knows, then he's just as sinful as you are. He, w- he was brought into the earth bearing as much Adamic nature as you've got. And that wasn't a cuss word. That was a reference to Adam. Adamic. Did you get that? So, guys, you believe, I mean, if you, if you, if you are fully confident with this, Yahweh is Yesu, (laughs) if you're, if you're, if you're comfortable with that, then what you've also come to is a, is a very comfortable position with the virgin birth. How about this? If, um, if you're comfortable with this, then another thing that you've been introduced to, just by those simple three words, is the whole doctrine of the atonement. Um, for instance, if, if Jesus is Jehovah, then why did Jehovah have to come to earth? Gang, there was an 1,100-page document that was written by a man by the name of Anselm called Curdeus Homo. Um, you can still get this. It's still available. I mean, it's hard reading. 
But um, it's just a Latin phrase, which means why God, man. Why did God become man? So what's the answer to that? And immediately, we are thrust into a very detailed discussion of the whole intent of the atonement. Just by saying, Jesus is Lord. (laughs) Guys, Paul begins by giving us a definition of the content of the gospel. And he says, okay, this is what it looks like. Because if you confess, Jesus is Lord. First of all, do you know what you're saying? You're saying Jesus is Jehovah. And, and I might point this out too, guys. One of the things that it does is that it very... Uh, what it, I hate to use the word implies because I don't... But the whole idea is there is a content to be believed, which means what? That there's some kind of objectivity to truth, which means what? That there's some kind of truth available, which means what? It means that truth is objective, which means what? It means truth is absolute. That's what it means. Because there is an objectivity to what you believe. Um, we're, we're going to come next week and we're going to talk, I mean, we're, we're talking about, um, we're talking about this term tonight, but next week we're going to talk about this term because that one is filled with as much content as, well, maybe not as much, but it's filled with content like this one is the, the, opening expression of the believer is not how you feel. It is not what you're doing. It is not that you love. It is not that you have peace. It is not that you love your fellow man. It is not the golden rule. It is a confession of something that you believe. Do you believe this? We're not finished, by the way. This is just the beginning. But do you believe this much? Because we got some more to, to tackle later on. But this is the first thing. Have you come to the place where you are comfortable with knowing that the Jesus for whom we make our sacrifices is the God who thundered at, my, at Sinai? Because that's what Jesus is Lord means. I'll show you one more thing, and then I'm done. Um, <clears throat> go to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. <clears throat> um, let me show you something just real quick. Uh, this is something that might help you in your whole study of the book of Corinthians, 1 Corinthians. Um, keep your, your finger there and find chapter 7. You got chapter 7? Um, now, I'm, I've got, I forget the name of this translation that I got. What have I got? I've got the English Standard Version. Okay, but uh, yours are going to start pretty much like this too. Uh, chapter 7, verse 1. 
Now concerning. Chapter 7, verse 25. Now concerning. Chapter 8, verse 1. Now concerning. Now, uh, flip over to chapter 12. Notice. Now concerning. Do you know what the Apostle Paul is doing? Not, not in the early chapters, but in the, in the really the middle chapters of, um, of the book of 1 Corinthians. Do you know what he's doing? He's dealing with problems. The Corinthian church was a, was a, was a wonderful church, but it was chock full of problems. There were people who were saying, you know, I'm of Cephas, I'm of Paul, I'm of Apollos, and, you know, that kind of divisive spirit. There was somebody that was sleeping with his father's wife. That was kind of ugly, uh, rather ugly. Uh, then, then they've got these problems with marriage. They got these problems with getting drunk at the, at the Lord's Supper. They got problems with, um, uh, the exercise of Christian liberty. And now we come to chapter 12, and guess what? We got more problems that Paul is trying to address to, to, to bring about a certain peace and harmony in, in Corinth. But the problem in chapter 12 is the exercise of spiritual gifts. And of course, as you know, that can be pretty uh, controversial and uh, it has been for years. It really isn't around here, which is a wonderful thing. But I mean, there have been churches that have just been rent asunder over the exercise of spiritual gifts. You know, tongues and all that business. Well, the, 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 the original problem church was Corinth. But I want you to notice... How he, how he, what he says. We'll just read a couple of verses. Now concerning spiritual gifts, brothers, I do not want you to be uninformed. You know that when you were pagans, you were led astray to mute idols. However, you were led. Here we go. Therefore, I want you to understand that no one speaking in the Spirit of God ever says Jesus is accursed. Here it is. And no one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. Guys, you know what the point of that is? Can a demon mouth these three words, Jesus is Lord? Yes, he can. But a demon might mouth the words, but he doesn't believe them. The content of the gospel begins with a confession of your belief that Jesus Christ is God in flesh. And this text says, the only way you can say it, the only people who say it, the only ones who really believe it, are those who have been born of the Spirit. My brother and sister in Christ, if you are seated here tonight and you believe Jesus is Lord, let me tell you why you believe it. Because God in His sovereign good pleasure saw fit to open your eyes to see the beauty of a redemptive plan that required God to take on flesh and bear the sins of His people. You know why you believe that? Because God the Holy Spirit gave you eyes to see and ears to hear. You are a miracle just where you are seated. Because God worked this work of grace in you to give you those eyes that you come to the place where you say, Yes, Jimmy. Yes, I do believe that. Hallelujah. 
We believe it, ladies and gentlemen. Because God granted in His sovereign grace that we should and could believe it. What a God He is. Let's quit. Our Father, I do pray that you will uh, work in your people a greater um, enjoyment, a greater grasp, uh, a greater sense of appreciation for this redemptive plan that you designed to save people as wicked as we are. It was no small thing, O oh God, that you have wrought to provide a sacrifice that was big enough to cover all of the sins of someone as wicked as I. And to think that you have done that for all the people that are here seated in this room and who are committed to Christ. Our sin has been plunged in that fountain that is filled with blood. And we are free because of this great confession that Jesus is Lord. We pray, of course, in His name. Amen. Thank you and good night.